Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 144. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the best-selling and acclaimed Vermont author, Bernie Lambic. Bernie. Hi, Barney. How's it going? Uh, good. You know, to say best-selling and to say acclaimed um, are both very nice words and uh, exaggerations, but but Thank but you. it's true though. I mean, I mean, you're a lawyer. You know, if if you if it's written down someplace, you were. I I saw your bio. The word best selling was in there as a best selling independent author of of like uh, 2020 November. So there was that was a, it was very specific, but it was but it, it was true <laughs> to form. So yeah, best selling at Bear Pond Books in Montpelier is true. See? Right. See? <laughs> All right. So yeah. So, so technically, technically that, that all of that, and you are acclaimed as well. So that, that also is true as well. So, and so you just came out with back in November, you came out with a sequel book to the first book. You came out in 20 in 2018. The first book you came out with was, um, uh, uncivil liberties. You yeah, came uncivil out, liberties. Yeah. And you just came out with a, almost a, it's a, a sequel, a big, you would call it a sequel. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, uh, an intent yeah. to commit. Yeah. I mean, so it's some of the same characters. It takes place a few years later in time than the, than the events of the first book. Right. And um, yeah, there's the cover of an intent to commit. Um, the, the sort of main protagonist in this book is her name, is Sarah Jacobson, and she's uh, the daughter of the person who might be considered the protagonist of the first book. Right. And so is this, so I want to, I want to get, I got lots of questions about, about the setting and, and, and your writing style and, and, and how you produce, but can you kind of give people a bit of a background as well as um, you know, kind of your history and how you started getting into, into writing, uh, writing mysteries? Cause you are originally a teacher graduated from Dartmouth, correct? And yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I graduated from Dartmouth in the 70s, and I did teach elementary school for a few short years and went to law school, and I did a few other things, and then went to law school in 1983 to, uh, no, 1985, sorry, to 1988, and then uh, at that point moved to Montpelier, um, where I've been practicing law since 1988, um, based in Montpelier. And um, so I've been doing that a long time, and it was just about 10 years ago I decided, well, I want to try a novel and I you know I had no idea what I was doing and uh, but I wanted to just give it a try and worked at it for several years I mean really many years sort of off and on you know so from about 2011 to 2018 I, I kind of developed that first novel um, and then luckily found Rootstock Publishing uh, who helped me get it off the ground and yeah so when you wrote so that the first book you wrote the, the, the first book that you, you put together, which was, um, you know, as we said, it was uh, it was the um, Uncivil Liberties. You what's what's interesting about your books is that your books seem to kind of take on a a, as you say, a, a First Amendment. It's kind of like a, a f books that, that, that kind of focus on First Amendment issues. 
And as you said, that Uncivil Liberties, you started in 2000, uh, 2011, got, got it published around 20, as you said, about seven years or so. Did the, the, the source of what the book was about kind of evolve over time since it did kind of take seven years to write? Well, I mean, sure, the book evolved. I wouldn't say the source did. I mean, it just took me a long time where there would be periods of six months or so where I just put it aside and didn't work on, right. on it and pick it up again. And um, you're right. The, there's a focus on First Amendment law and constitutional theory in both of these books. Um, on Civil Liberties has to do in part with sort of cyberbullying of a high school student by another student who has some homophobic beliefs and um, and targets a friend of his, somebody who really is a friend. But um, she, the beginning of that book sort of starts with her death. And the question is, how did she die? Why did she die? And it appeared to be connected with the cyberbullying. So there's First Amend Amendment issues around that uh, throughout Uncivil Liberties, as well as some other issues like prayer at town meeting comes mm. into it. Um, an intent to commit the, the second book uh, has to do with racial justice organizing and questions about when does a threat um, become unprotected by the First Amendment? When is when is language so severe as to be considered not protected by the First Amendment? So that's one, one, one of the issues. And another issue has to do with flying the Black Lives Matter flag, which has uh, an issue that's come up for public schools in Vermont. And um, whether that raises a First Amendment issue for them if they're confronted or or presented with uh, petitions from students of a different um, perspective or persuasion that want to fly their flag. And right. then, you know, so it's, it, that's sort of called the public forum doc, doctrine. Do you create a public forum if you fly the flag, the BLM flag on your flagpole? Right. Now, you, you know, you're the, whole, the old adage of write what you know. Do you how how difficult or easy it is for you to transition between putting on your author hat and putting on your lawyer hat when you're trying to write this do you do you feel as though you have to add some narrative in here for the sake of the reader or some of it do you feel that you have to take away for the sake of over explanation or how does that work for you well, for sure, to make it a novel that people might want to read, there has to be characters <laughs> and plot and character development. And that's the part that was new for me and, and hard. You know, how to make characters come alive and breathe is really the hard thing, I think, for a novelist and I think was challenging for me. And that's what I was trying to do. Um, it's not just a legal brief, you know, so um, but it's it's mixed between the both of these are mysteries. I call them legal mysteries. And so it's mixed between the mystery plot that is, that's inhabited by these characters and then, you know, the legal issues that they confront. And I do indeed spend quite a few pages um, dealing with legal argument before courts and among lawyers and lawyers and clients trying to figure out these constitutional issues that have interested me so much in my career. So there's a you know, a real deep connection between the kind of legal work I've done over the over many years now and 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 the issues that I cover in these books. Right. No. So I got to I'm, I'm really curious about it because, you know, as a lawyer, you, you you do a lot of reading, not just, you know, 
crime thriller novels, but just a lot of reading. Do you ever read like any like case study or deposition or something along those lines? Like, oh, this would make a great. Oh, I gotta. Do you do you feel yourself you have to like put up some walls, or do you kind of catch yourself with a like a notepad next to you, like? This is, let me just put this down as some sort of story seed for another book, or how does that, how does that work for you? Yeah, yeah, I mean, close to that. I'm not quite a notepad <laughs> when I'm reading a deficit, but, you know, I, I do draw from my work and from cases I know about, and, and um, you know, in fact, I mean, the first book dealt with, in part with, as I said, um, prayer at, uh, at town meeting and whether public, you know, towns having their town meeting can constitutionally um, begin their town meeting with a Christian prayer um, and, and sort of do that. And and I had a case um, of that kind challenging prayer at a town meeting that I did with a couple of ACLU attorneys um, right. that we brought and we challenged that. Um, so I, I, I mean, I changed some of the facts and, you know, the, the, the people involved, but I drew largely from right. the work I had done. And, and do you see that you, there are some fictional characters obviously in this, um, but it does take place in Montpelier. It yeah. does take place in Vermont. Do you, is it a, other than the characters, is it a fictionalized Vermont or is it, or is it real Vermont? Like do you, is there any other fictionalized things other than characters that you've you've put into your books? Yeah, some fictionalized, but I also base it largely on Mont in Montpelier and and real places in Montpelier. Sometimes I change the names, sometimes I don't. So a lot of the street names are made up, but anybody that knows Montpelier would kind of know where it is. And I, I mean, I have people getting coffee at a place I call Sacred Grounds Cafe, which is very much Capital Grounds in Montpelier, and. You know, so I use real places and people will recognize that. I mean, I think that's been a fun thing for some of my readers, Montpelier readers, Central Vermont readers tell me, oh, you know, that was really, it was really enjoyable to kind of locate these places and know what you're, what you're referring to. Right. Now, uh, beta readers, uh, proofreaders, people that come in to kind of read that, are all of them from Vermont or have you been deliberate to try to find people to kind of help proofread and do some beta reading that are like outside the geographic area? Well, proofreading itself, you know, I mean, that's a technical thing that was done by somebody hired by Rootstock in each case, right. but I've had readers. I mean, I wouldn't call them proof proofreaders, but, you know, just looking for it to make sure commas are in the right place and not the wrong place. But with my first book, I sought out, a larger group of readers, some, you know, law school friends that lived around the country and so forth, old friends and a few more. With the second book, I I didn't do that. I mean, I had a few readers, um, critical readers um, who, who gave me, you know, tremendous feedback and they're recognized in the acknowledgements in both books. So that was really important. That was before it got to the stage of Rootstock um, pairing me up with a professional editor who in both cases is somebody called Ricky Gard Diamond, who's a well-known Vermont writer herself, uh, essayist and, and uh, novelist and short story writer, but she's a terrific editor. And um, so she she gave professional editing to both of these books. And do you find, do you, do you feel it's important? Cause as you mentioned, you had some of your lawyer friends uh, help uh, 
you know, do kind of like some beta reading on your, your first book. Is it, do you find it important for people to read, to kind of like give you feedback who kind of understand the, understand the medium that you're writing in or having somebody that doesn't understand, um, you know, say like the, the law side of things. Um, and then also same thing with like the geographic aspects of it, like having people read that aren't from Vermont to kind of get some feedback on, and on how well, how well did are is some, like you said, the streets or some of the things described are able to be translated well to some that might not be familiar with the, with the geography. Yeah. Great questions that I really didn't think about ahead of, ahead of time. Now that you're asking them, um, probably should have done more of that. Um, yeah. I mean, some of the readers weren't, you know, we're not lawyers and so didn't have that kind of legal expertise, but mostly more of them were uh, yeah. with the first book anyway. Um, uh, you know, one of my readers um, who really helped me a tremendous amount is a novelist called Howard Norman, who's a, a highly acclaimed, really in the word acclaimed there really does work for him, uh, nationally acclaimed. And uh, he happens to be a, a friend and he helped me a great deal. Um, with some ideas, you know, or with, he read early drafts in both cases and straightened me out and some things. Yeah. You'll see a blurb by him. That's you pulled that right up there. Yeah. yeah. Do you know how, do you know of Howard Norman's work at all? Uh, yeah. 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 He's the author of my darling detective and the, the yeah. bird artist. Yeah. Yeah. I just read that on that thing there too. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're so knowledgeable. <laughs> uh, do you do you see also is like uh, you're 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 writing and like you know comparing it to like say To Kill a Mockingbird or some of these other uh, some of these other books in the sense that um, how uh, how timeless do you see these these stories that you're telling? Could you tell them that are that are based off of some specific slices of Vermont politics as it happens. Uh, but do you, do you see some of the messaging and some of the, the, some of the messaging, the morals and in the, and the, the journeys um, feel timeless to, to the readers? Yeah. Yeah. It's that mixture of top, you know, topical things. I mean, cyberbullying in schools, for example, but, right. But bullying has always been there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the tension about what kind of speech should be protected um, as a matter of constitutional law, but also as a matter of morality, you know, what do we tolerate? What don't we tolerate? I mean, those are timeless questions. Um, and, you know, intent to commit is also a love story. That's part of the part of the reference in the title there. And so, you know, there's timeless issues about relationships and people struggling Do you see the so when you after you finished after you finished uh, writing on civil liberties? Did you already? Because it's interesting. You went from from twenty. It took you seven years to write your first book. But it only took you like two years to two or three years to write your second book. And after you finished after you finished on civil liberties, did you like? Did you say? Was it destined for a sequel, or did or did you have a spark of inspiration afterwards and said? 
I got another book coming. I got to, I got to write. It took book. a little while to get there. So no, it wasn't desk. I didn't feel that right from the beginning, but right. it didn't take long to, um, I mean, I kept thinking about the characters and wanted to develop these characters further. And I had some other legal issues that um, struck me as interesting to build a mystery around. Um, the folk, the focus of the mystery is a kidnapping in the second book. The principal character is kidnapped um, right at the beginning. And then there's backstory that fills, fills in how that arises. Um, so no, it took me a little while, but, but you're right that it didn't take me nearly as long to write the second book. And part of that's a matter of confidence developing, you know, I felt like, oh, okay, I, I can't do this, I didn't know, you know, earlier and was quite doubtful about whether I'd ever really accomplish um, completing a publishable novel. But when I did, I felt like I can do it again. And, and I, I mean, I feel like the writing's better um, in the second book and, and it's a better book. Yeah. Uh, did you, is there any plans on, are you already working on a third one? I have written some, um, some pages that could end up in a third book. Uh, <laughs> it's far from being the case. So I can't barely, I've done some writing uh, about, again, about the characters continuing right. the development of their lives, but um, but I don't really have a plot yet. Right. So and do you, it's more that I've written some scenes. Right. So, but it, it is, it is going to still follow some of like get the, the same setting. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. We'll see. I mean, it may never get there, but I hope so. So talk to us about how you're able to kind of compartmentalize or how to split up. How do you split up your day? For instance, if, you know, we have, you know, some listeners or viewers who are like, you know, Hey, Bernie, this is great. You you know, you get two books down your work, your, your, your work, you've set your pace. What would be some, what would be some advice that you would give to some budding authors or some people who are looking to write their own thing, but they just don't seem to have enough hours in the day to figure out a time to do that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's true for a lot of people. I, I don't have particular discipline about saying, you know, I'm going to write, get up at six in the morning and write for three hours. I, I don't do that. I kind of just have written when I wanted to. I mean, what's worked for me is um, my kids um, grew up and um, many years ago now they're, they're in their thirties and I have three kids and, and, um, and I've been a lawyer for a lot of years. So I've been sort of being a lawyer more or less, you know, more like half time, right. not really feeling the pressure to be working, you know, solid eight to 10 hour days at the law. I don't do that. And right. so I've had luck, the luxury of, of time, my, of my own time and directing my own time. Also as a, a as a partner in a law firm, I'm not, I don't have a boss. Right. Um, of course, cases arise that um, become pressing and occupy my time. And occasionally I've done trial work. And if you're in the midst of a trial, it's consuming. But mm. but especially in the last few years, I, you know, I've been more or less the, the master of my time and had the the ability to make time as I wanted. I mean, I, I acknowledge there's a lot of privilege and a lot of luxury in that that not everybody has. Right. So talking a bit again about your uh, this your source material, Vermont 
inside, you know, looking about first amendment things, what do you find about the first, what, what, what are the things that kind of strike you as an author, not necessarily as a lawyer, but as an author that you find inspiration in writing about first amendment issues? Well, I, I just do find a lot of these uh, issues really interesting and the debates about them really interesting. I mean, it's going on all, you know, all the time with the Supreme Court cases and, you know, the development of the law in this area, the development of the law, especially around religious issues, is just changing dramatically with the rightward drift of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, so, you know, for me, it's fascinating. And what I wanted to do was to bring some of the this thinking and argument to a, a lay audience that might be interested in a mystery and want to read a mystery, right. um, but also then be exposed to uh, the First Amendment issues and theory. So there, there's a bit of would you say there's a bit of education because you know you were a teacher too so are you like yeah. kind of combining like yeah. your 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 first part of your career as an educator with the lawyer piece kind of combining those with having you know having people learn something from your books as well yeah yeah for sure and i tried to deal with the law and the way lawyers work in a in a realistic way i mean that really is a goal um you know, everybody, not everybody, a lot of people have, you know, their exposure to law, seeing law and order on TV or something like that. So they're used to police dramas and criminal law dramas where everything's packed into 60 minute episodes and things happen very quickly. But um, and it's not always realistic, you know. Right. So I, I've tried to present these things uh, quite realistically. And so, yeah, education's a, a a big part of it. And people have told me that I re people have said, you know, I, I mean, one question for me was, you know, would people be able to get into the legal stuff? And I've had a number of readers say what I really loved was this legal part. And I learned a lot about the law. It's really interesting. I mean, right. there's other people who probably don't share their views with me for whom that's not true. And they may really have really struggled through the legal parts, the legal arguments that are in the books. And maybe just skim those pages and move on more to the, the plot and the characters. Right. And so, and I remember you said in a, in a previous interview that the, the character from the first book was more kind of loosely based off of your personality, but with the second book, not so much. Right. So this, this character in the first book, a, a lawyer named Sam Jacobson. Yeah. I mean, very, very, very loosely. Uh, there was a little bit of autobiography in that, but, and I say very loosely, and that's kind of the way it began when I was writing. And then, you know, as I wrote and it went through drafts and development, I mean, I, I realized like these characters have to separate from me and, and, and my family and, and they have to, you know, they have to live their own lives and develop their own characters and personalities. So it moved away from that. Um, so yeah, in the second book, that character Sam Jacobson is is a relatively minor character in it. So yeah, so that was kind of your that was an explicit thing, or is that some feedback that you get from other people who say, "Hey, let's um, make it make it a new character in the second book"? Uh, no, it's just that um, I wanted to focus on 
his daughter and, and her partner, who, who is a character in the first book, yeah. a main character of the first book, it becomes the, the lover, the partner of Sarah Jacobson. And uh, the, they're the two chief characters of the second book. And I was just more interested in writing about them and having the younger characters sort of take the lead in that book. It wasn't didn't come from other people, really. That was me. No. Now, did you so how much did you have to when you had people kind of had people you know, edit kind of like beta read your book and, and, and give you a thing. Was there anything in there that you really liked? Like, I love this scene or I like where this is going that overall they all said, I would cut that out. It's either, it, it's, it's either it's too dry, too slow or too fast or too thing. Was there anything on there that you kind of had to pull out of the, your manuscript and say, well, I'm going to save it for something else. I try to find something else for it. Not, nothing large, no large section of text was pulled out. I, I mean, I know this happens with writers a lot. They might write a whole 50 pages that then gets really <laughs> tossed, tossed aside. Um, that didn't happen. It was more, you know, when my editor, you know, might have said a certain passage, you know, she, she didn't, didn't know what the rationale for including that was or something like that. And I had to rethink things. And I never I never fundamentally disagreed with any of the criticism that I got. Uh, early criticism, early critiques of the, of the book um, caused me to restructure it some. So to move scenes from where, you know, move scenes around and have two timelines developing at once rather than do the whole thing chronologically, that came from some critical reading. Um, so, yeah. And so were you always, always wanting to write like a, a crime, uh, a crime mystery, or did you have, did it start off as did, did, um, uh, did uncivil liberties always have that genre or did that yeah. evolve into it? No, it, it, it was a mystery from the start. I mean, okay. I was beginning to shake my head when you were asking, did I always want, and so all this stuff only happened when, you know, I'm in my, <laughs> you know, in my mid fifties when right. I started doing this. So um, it wasn't like I was doing any of this before, but the, it was a mystery from the start. And that's kind of a form. I mean, I've always loved reading mysteries. I read a lot of mysteries and um, that's kind of been a, um, a genre that uh, I'm comfortable with. Right. And I want, I mean, I just, I, I know readers like mist often like mysteries. So, you know, I wanted to write something people would be interested in. So, so one of the things I've always been curious about this with people who write mysteries, I've never, I've never been, I was kind of curious because I've, I've heard a couple versions of this. Your book starts off like you know your your first book starts off with a murder. Your first, your second book starts off with a kidnapping. Do you, as a writer, know how it's going to end, or do you outline everything out, or are you by the seat of your pants going to say, I, "Let's see where this goes"? How do you? What's your style on that? Yeah, it's a little more of the second than the first. Really, I mean, there's okay. always some mixture, but I'm not a big outliner, so I don't have. I mean. I shouldn't say I'm not I, in my legal work. Maybe I'm more of an outliner, but I don't I didn't have a whole understanding of the plot from start to finish. Oh, wow. OK. Before writing. I mean, it was more certain themes and and then 
some of it, I mean, really is this feeling of sort of watching it develop, watching the, seeing where the characters are going to go. And it, it takes on a life of its own to some extent. I mean, there's a, a fiction in saying that because it, they, of course, don't really have a life of their own, but it, feel, it can feel that way. And, um, and I didn't know um, how things were going to end in either book until I got there. Really? Okay. Yeah. Did you, are you, are you one of those authors where your characters surprise you on the decisions they make or are you in charge? Well, like I said, it feels like they are um, making decisions and leading me along a bit. <laughs> so, I mean, you want your characters to be consistent in their character and, um, and be real that way. You know, since you're showing the book, I want to mention that both of the the artwork on both covers is by a painter called Susan Bull Riley. Okay. Um, she's a she's a, a central Vermont painter, a really, really good painter. Mostly she does more nature painting, natural scenes, including close-ups and also landscapes. But I took a couple of urban type landscapes that she did, urban scapes maybe is the word, I don't know. Um, but she let me use these paintings of hers. Um, and both of them are along the north branch of the uh, Winooski River. In are this, so this is, are these Montpelier settings then? Yeah, the yeah, they're both, they're actually from the same spot on, the, the, there's a little courtyard or a little uh, green space um, between some apartment buildings on Elm Street looking okay. at the north branch. It's the same spot, two different yeah. paintings. Really? Um, and I just, I, I just love these paintings, so I wanted to use them, and she allowed me to do that. Okay. Susan, Susan Bull Riley is her Susan name. Susan Bull Riley. Okay. We'll have to. We'll put. We'll we'll put a link in there in the, the show notes for her. The, yeah, her, her website is available. You can find it, and it's uh, got lovely stuff. So, what is it about? And also the thing is like so the the theme itself and all this stuff is like when when you're when you're working in, you know, like crime thriller. It just it does it just seems apropos to actually be in Vermont, but actually make it a winter setting. There's something about crime thriller if it's like say it's a summer day. Just it just really doesn't really kind of fit to the theme of the book. Huh? Yeah, that's a bit coincidental there that the painting is a winter setting. I, I just like the painting. It's not as if the book primarily takes place in winter. Right. So uh, I know what you mean about that. That might be, you would think that a Vermont mystery is going to be in a really cold environment, but <laughs> weather does not figure prominently in these books. Right. Do you, and, and so what's one of the things that you notice? Cause I, is, is that kind of a, a standard fare to kind of begin a mystery, like a mystery thriller with like a crime, like right out the bat. Cause then that, is that something that you've, you've seen as a, as uh, a good way to kind of get your writers, get your, get your, your readers right involved in the story for right from page one. Yeah. I think it's a plot device to capture the reader's attention. Right. I don't know how standard it is. Maybe it's common, I suppose. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that's, I mean, that, that's one of the benefits. And I find it fascinating that, you know, when you, you set it up, you're, you're along for the ride. That's a, that's a, that, that must be exciting for you at writing it. Cause you basically get, you're, you're the first one witnessing 
the story unfold. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that I write that scene first. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. Because that's some of the restructuring, the reorganize, oh, reorganizing wow. of the scenes. So, so in this, so in, in intent to commit, which begins with the kidnapping, as I said, and as you know, um, I didn't write that scene first. Okay. All right. And was that something that your editor kind of gave you feedback on as to? Uh, I was an earlier was reader that, that made that point to me right. that you might tr think about developing this, you know, sort of two timelines in the story rather than do the whole thing chronologically, okay. jump back and forth, as long as you can make it clear what's going on. Right. Um, and so, so talk to us a bit about also just, I'm just kind of curious about how you, uh, you have time to read, you kind of, do you, Say you, you get your manuscript. Let's talk to talk to us about intent to commit for a second. So you get your manuscript. You, you, you wrote everything up. Do you then like print it out, grab a thing, and kind of like sit down and kind of like reread it with a pen mark, or do you just then just it's all done? You just like email it off to some friends to say, hey, check it out to give me some feedback on it. Um, what's the next step after you write your draft, your first draft? Yeah, for me, there's no such thing as a first draft. So I'm okay. constantly rewriting as I go along. As I write subsequent chapters, I'm revising earlier chapters, restructuring, as I said. So there's no, this is the first draft. It doesn't really even work that way. It's just, it's always a work in process. Okay. Really right to the very end, it's a work in process. And it may be that I share that work and process with someone at a certain moment in time. Of course I do right. that. And so, so that's a draft at that point, but it, it's far from a first draft because it's always been undergoing revision the whole time. <laughs> Every you, sentence is right. like that. And so at what point as you, you know, they say like, you know, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. Is there a point where you're like, I can keep working on this, but I want to, I want to share it with somebody first. So is there, is there a point where you have to have the, the discipline for your, yourself to say, all right, I gotta, I gotta stop. Is yeah. Yeah. I mean, I came to places where points, you know, especially I'm thinking of the first book where I didn't know what more to do and I needed somebody to read it to get. So, I mean, and then, and then that's like a huge act of, um, of maybe courage and maybe hubris to want to share it with somebody. And, and I look back and I think about some of those, you know, early drafts, early versions that I shared with people and they're, you know, really wasn't very good. And it's, so it's embarrassing in hindsight, but I needed to get feedback from, you know, some family members and some friends um, and then could keep, keep working on it. So what would be your tip was so, what do you see as kind of like the, the the biggest drawback that you would presume for like people who are have their books in perpetual draft form who just either is it fear what do you see like if someone say i'm just afraid to actually take that plunge or do you or if you have some authors you're like i'm just afraid it's not good enough yet what would be your advice for some of those writers who say how to get from that yeah step to the next 
Yeah, it's 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 tough. I mean, I think I mean some writers work. Some people were are in writers' workshops and they work with a group of other writers, and then of course that's helpful. I never did that, but that often works for people. I mean, what I would say is, you know, try to get somebody to to read some of your some chapters, maybe some portion of it, even if not the whole thing, and give give some feedback. And it it does it should probably ideally shouldn't be somebody you're really close to. It shouldn't be, you know, your mother or your your right. kid, although kids are more critical than anybody. <laughs> so it should be your kid. But you know, you want to get that honest feedback, as difficult as it is to maybe face that and to take that plunge. But if if you're ser serious about writing and serious about moving it towards publication, I think that's what people ought to do. Right. And at, at that, what point should they have, um, you know, working with rootstock, uh, you know, to kind of try to get your money, you know, get get your money's worth on it? Is do you how many how many proofreads or you know having some readers look at it ahead of time before you uh, send it off to an editor? Yeah, a good question. Probably, I mean, if it's a first book, I would say <clears throat> several readers would be better before you're sending it to um, a publisher um, <clears throat> or an agent, if you happen to know an agent and you're going that route. Because right. um, you want it in, it's got to be in some decent shape before you get it to a publisher or they're not going to be interested in it. Right. And I, I don't mean just, you know, well, a well-told story, but also in decent shape with with grammar and sentence structure and those kind of more prosaic things right. as well. Yeah. Um, so I do. Do you see yourself also as like, a, you know, as as an author that, you know, kind of filling this specific. Because in a way, it's like you. you you do feel this this niche of the because the the crime, you know, crime thriller mysteries are are all the rage now. Um, being able to kind of give a voice, do you see yourself giving a um, providing that voice for say um, Vermont in this type of genre, or do you see yourself providing a voice for um, First Amendment issues in this type of genre? Well, I, uh, probably more the second than the first because that's a more unusual thing. There are other Vermont writers, mystery writers, um, better known than me and, and more accomplished. Um, uh, Vermont's important in these books, but I don't think it's critical. Um, you know, again, for people that know central Vermont and Montpelier, there's a lot of stuff that's familiar in it, but probably it's probably not essential to the books right. well so talk to us about because you did you did you did mention where you got the the covered cover design from so when you were when you were working with rootstock um soup to nuts did you how much how much did you have um say for like cover design and and all that kind of stuff well um so my initiative to work to use these paintings, um, the design, they worked with a professional designer who came up with not both interior design and cover design. And I remember for um, 
the first book on civil liberties, they did several designs of the cover um, using that painting, but in different formats. Like you'll see the format for intent to commit is the paintings on the full page and right. on civil liberties. So there's these different ways to do those things. So they gave me a few designs of this uncivil liberties cover, you know, with the lettering, uncivil being white, liberties being in that color. And so, and there were like, you know, maybe six designs. And I was with maybe, you know, a team of maybe three or four people from the publisher and me. And, and, and I remember saying, well, I really like this one the most, I think. And they all sort of very subtly shook their heads. <laughs> and I said, well, maybe I like this one. So, you know, I mean, they knew more than I did about what would work and what wouldn't work. And, uh, you know, their, their prevailing, their wisdom prevailed. Right. Um, but, um, but I worked with them and they were, they, you know, it, it was, you know, maybe, I don't know if it would have been my, if I'd really chosen something that they thought was the worst cover, they, they might have just really overruled me, but it never quite got to that point of conflict. Right. I mean, I should say working with Rootstock Publishing has been uh, terrific. Uh, working with the designer whose name is Donnie Hoffman, uh, uh, Daniela or Donnie Hoffman. She's great. Um, and, um, and, and so I just, I couldn't have been really happier, you know, couldn't have been happier with my editor, with the publisher. It's a great team. Did you ever, because when you when you wrote on Civil Liberties, it was, you never intended it to have a sequel. Do you? Are you still? If there's ever a reprint, are you ever going to put, you know, like book one, book two of like you know the oh the, the trilogy, the Montpelier trilogy, the Montpelier trilogy, the yeah the the, yeah. the Lambic Chronicles or something. Or? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's not. Again, these books are they're printed on demand, so. Um, I, I don't know what it would take to sort of change the cover a little bit or something. Um, so, I mean, I don't have any plans for that, for a, a new cover that would say part two of the Lambic Chronicles. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't see that happening. But. <laughs> <laughs> but you do, as I said, but you are, but there's a few themes you're probably going to want to keep though, right? You know, for if, uh, if, if and when you write a third book. Well, I, again, yes, I want to. I want to keep writing about some of these people. Yeah. So they've developed a life for me that I'm still interested in their characters and want them to have more engagement with the world and with the audience. And what about, for instance, also like even the cover design is going to be basically kind of the same. Like I saw a, a, a Susan Bull Riley. Is there another painting you've already kind of picked out? I mean, no, I, I haven't picked up another one. But. <laughs> There are plenty I could pick out. And, you know, I imagine I would probably ask her again, since now I, you know, there's a certain theme to that and people will recognize that fact. So uh, that would be likely. I, I can't say for sure now, but. Right. But yeah, she does have amazing stuff. Like you say, her landscape pieces are, are I think what I've, I've, I, she's more well known for. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So what were, what, what, what would you say is like one of the, uh, one of the things other than, other than the, the, the courage of being able to, um, the confidence of, of writing again, what were some of the things that you, you learned on your sec that you, that you 
implemented in your second book that you learned from your first book? I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for that. I, I, I was just more confident with the writing. So, you know, there's a little less sweat about, is this good enough? Um, and I didn't feel quite so much like I needed to prove myself. I think I was trying out a lot of things in the first book, right. um, playing with language a little more rather than just writing the story, you know, kind of playing with language, using humor in a certain way. Right. Um, the second book's a little more serious, a little less. The, the bo first book is sort of a mixture of, I'd say a little more, a little more comedy in it. Okay. Um, light, some, some um, scenes that are light and have the characters being light with each other. The, the right. second book's a little heavier. No, do you feel your? Did you kind of get some inspiration when you're when you start when you're writing both books? Did you just kind of surround yourself with, like, you know, crime, mystery, thriller books, or did you kind of like do multiple genres and just kind of like pulled inspiration from where wherever it kind of floated into? Yeah, I wasn't particularly reading mysteries at the time I was writing any more than any other books. I read a lot of different okay. books, not nonfiction and fiction. Um, both. And um, no, I wasn't. I, I do find myself influenced by the writers. So I, I told you I've written some scenes for a you know, possible third, third book. And I had been reading over the summer these books by the Italian writer called Elena Ferrante, okay. called the Neapolitan Novels. It starts with a book called My Brilliant Friend. And they've become sort of an international phenomenon. Um, and the, I, I think they're terrific novels, really exceptional. And I found myself being influenced by that style of writing, which is first person narrative and very um, uh, introspective kind of writing about relationships. And it just it, it, it helped me focus that way a little bit more in, in writing these scenes right. involving, uh, again, a couple of the same characters. That's cool. Yeah. So you're you're with these characters for the long haul, then you're they're not they're not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, for good or for bad. Yeah. <laughs> so Bernie, we are we are knocking at our hour mark. So oh, so if people are interested in wanting to kind of like follow you and learn more about your work, so the best place that they could probably go would um, off the. Uh, off the bat would probably be BernieLambeck.com, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's that's my website. Uh, BernieLambeck is one word.com. We'll get you there. Um, and I, I guess th this, right, you're showing my website. Um, I, I have a, a Facebook page for um, um, for my sort of author persona as well. I'm trying to remember. I think that I think it's still called on civil liberties that Facebook page, but that's okay. probably something that should be changed because it was a Facebook page begun sort of for my first book. There it is. No, it's Bernie Lambeck. Oh, okay, author. so that did get changed. Yes. Yeah. Oh, thanks for finding that so quickly and, and help your have that way you can be we can be accurate about it because I'm not accurate in the telling of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, so that's a, a Facebook page, uh, my author page. That, uh, right. You'll see. All right, Bernie. Well, thanks a lot. And, uh, and come back on when book three comes out. Thank you, Barney. Appreciate that. Yeah.
You're welcome. Oh. Take care. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for you inviting me to do this with you. And, you know, I thought when I saw, OK, you know, your website and, and story comic and thinking, <laughs> OK, this is a guy that really is interested in graphic novels and comics and so on. You know, and I didn't know why you wanted to talk to me, but I'm very glad you did. <laughs> um, and, and you've been a, a tremendously gracious host. So thank you. You're welcome. And